Could I please ask you to turn in your Bibles for the last time in this series to the Gospel of Mark, uh, to Mark chapter 16, and uh, we're going to read verses 1 to 8 together in a few minutes. Uh, Mark chapter 16, we're going to read verses 1 to 8, but just before we turn to reading those verses, I do need to just say a few words uh, to explain why we are not going to be looking at the longer ending of Mark, as you will see uh, in most of your Bibles as recorded in verses 9 through to verse 20. Um, Let me start off by just saying that uh, by far the largest majority of biblical scholars are in full agreement that Mark's gospel ends uh, in Mark chapter 16 and verse 8. If you look at any modern English translation, the ESV, the Christian Standard Bible, the NIV, you should see that verses 9 to 20 are in square brackets, uh, and many translations either have a footnote uh, or they actually have a heading that breaks the text telling you that some of the earliest manuscripts do not include verses 9 to 20. Uh, Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus, these are the most respected and reliable copies of almost the entire Bible dating back to the fourth century uh, after Christ, do not contain the longer ending of Mark. Similarly, when one reads the early church fathers, Their collective writings in the second and third centuries uh, after the the scriptures were recorded, you can almost make up an entire New Testament by just looking at the early church fathers and their quotations from scripture. And again, you will find that the long ending of Mark is missing in the early church fathers. And so in 1611, uh, when our Bible, as we have it in a sense, based today in English, was translated, uh, the King James Version from the Greek and the Hebrew manuscripts available to them at that time. It was based on later manuscripts, which included the longer ending of Mark, and that way it came into our English translations. Uh, But over the last 500 years or so, and particularly over the last 200 years, many older manuscripts older than what were used when the King James Version was translated, have since been found, uh, enabling us to get back much closer to the source, to the original, uh, to what could be considered the original writings of Scripture. This might worry you this evening that we are going to be leaving out a portion of what you have in your Bibles, uh, and you've maybe never questioned this before. But rather than this undermining our confidence uh, in the inerrancy of the Word of God, this actually affirms that what we have before us truly is trustworthy, it is reliable, sufficient, the inerrant Word of God. Because we are now the recipients of the most rigorous and and scientific textual study of all the many thousands, we're talking in the 20s of thousands of available manuscripts uh, that have allowed scholars to reconstruct the original Greek New Testament. They claim to above 99.9% certainty. And where there is uncertainty in the case of less than 0.1%, it has to do with uh, very minor uh, grammar issues in a few places that have no doctrinal or gospel significance at all. 
But what is clear as they've reached this conclusion of what we can call uh, the original documents of the New Testament, it excludes uh, this long ending of Mark. And, and you can understand why, as we're going to read it in a minute. Mark's gospel ends rather abruptly uh, after the first reading of it, as we're going to see in a minute. And, and you can understand why some scribes, as they were copying the gospel of Mark, they would have also had access to Luke's account and Matthew's account and John's account. As they were making copies of Mark's gospel, somewhere along the line, relatively early in church history, someone thought Mark's gospel needs a happy ending. And so this long ending uh, was added. But I hope to show you tonight that in doing that, in adding the long ending, we actually take away from the thrust uh, of the application which Mark tends to leave us with uh, in verse 8. So we're going to end our studies uh, in this series in verse 8 tonight. And if what I've just shared with you concerns you uh, or you would like more information, I would be very happy to chat more with you about this during the course of the week. I would uh, gladly refer you to some good reading uh, on this matter. But with that said, uh, with that explanation, let's turn now and read together Mark chapter 16, uh, verses 1 to 8. Uh, which focuses on the resurrection of Jesus. Mark 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Just so far uh, in God's word this evening. So we come tonight to, as I've said, the final installment in our series in, in Mark's gospel. And, and I trust that our time together over the past seven months, this is sermon number 20 in our uh, series in Mark, I trust that this has been a blessing to you as we've followed the fast-paced, action-packed account of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. If you look back to Mark chapter 1, verse 1, you will see that Mark started his gospel with these words, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then he just rapidly jumps into the story of Jesus' life and, and ministry, and particularly in the second half of the book, has focused on Jesus' journey to Jerusalem, where he is crucified, buried, and now Tonight we read Rises Again. Throughout his account, Mark has revealed to us in rapid fire succession various aspects of the deity of Jesus Christ. The fact that he truly is the Son of God. We've seen his divine power over temptation. 
As Satan tempted him in the wilderness for 40 days, we've seen his divine power over sickness and disability with many healings, his power over men's hearts, his power even over the demons. We've seen his power over death as he raises Jairus' daughter, his divine power over nature multiple times, his divine power over human wisdom as all those who tried to trick him and trap him were brought to nothing. We've seen his divine power over the human traditions of mankind, his power through teaching, his power over the future, his power at the transfiguration. And over the last two weeks particularly, we've seen his divine power even in suffering and death. And except for two occasions in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 3 verse 11 and chapter 5 verse 7, when the the demons, when the evil spirits recognize Jesus and they proclaim him to be the son of God, it seems that despite all the evidence that Mark has presented that Jesus Christ is indeed the son of God, it's not until we get to the very end of Mark's gospel when the penny finally drops We saw last week a Roman centurion, a pagan Gentile, he cries out at the foot of the cross, truly Jesus is the Son of God. But chapter 15 leaves leaves us begging the question, is it all a sad case of too little, too late? It's, It's great that the Roman centurion acknowledged Jesus in his death. It's great that a a Jewish leader, Joseph of Arimathea, devoted himself to Jesus in his burial. But what's the point if Jesus is dead? In actual fact, Paul addresses that exact issue head on in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 16, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised... Your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep, those who've died in Christ, have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So the good news, the gospel of Jesus can never end in his death on the cross. It is certainly true that Jesus' substitutionary atonement, as we've considered it, uh, is absolutely crucial to our salvation. We saw last week, without him paying the price which God's holy justice demands, without him suffering that separation from God for the wages of our sin, without him dying in our place, then none of us could be forgiven. Without him imputing his righteousness to our account, none of us could ever be reconciled to God. That's clear. We saw last week, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. But that's not the whole story because in Romans 4, Paul explains the significance of the resurrection. Paul says he was delivered up to death for our trespasses. He he died on the cross to pay the price for our sins, and he was raised from the dead for our justification, that we might be declared righteous before God. It's tied up with 
the resurrection. We cannot ever separate the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the gospel. You take away the resurrection, we have no good news. And our faith is futile, and we are still in our sins, and we are of all people to be most pitied. So although Mark's gospel ending is the shortest of all the gospels, it cannot end until he has told us about the resurrection of Jesus. Otherwise, we have no gospel at all. So I want us to see four things this evening in Mark's brief ending to his gospel. And in the first place, we're going to see three unexpecting witnesses in verses 1 to 3. Let's just read those verses again. When the Sabbath was passed, that's our Saturday evening, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And then very early on the first day of the week, the Lord's day, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? So Mark mentions three women here in chapter 16. Uh, But this is not the first time that we've heard their names, because we actually encountered these three women last week in chapter 15, although I didn't make any comment about them last week because I wanted to keep that for tonight. So look back with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 15, uh, and we will see these three women both in the account of the death and the burial of Jesus. Look back to chapter 15, verse 40. After the death of Jesus on the cross, we read, there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph, and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Now, at at face value, this should surprise us. Uh, verses 40 to 41 in Mark's gospel, because his gospel is this super fast-paced account uh, of, of the gospel of Jesus. It's one in which he's left out lots of details which the other gospel writers have included. So why would Mark, in this short, action-packed gospel, include a verse about these few women who witnessed Jesus' death? Move on then to the burial account, which again is mainly focused on Joseph of Arimathea, uh, this religious leader who went and asked for permission to remove the body of Jesus, to bury him in his own tomb, and sealed it with a large rock. But look at verse 47, here it is again. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. So again, two of the three women who witnessed his death now also witnessed his burial. And then we come to chapter 16, to the account of the resurrection of Jesus, and who do we find as the first witnesses of the facts of the resurrection? It's none other than these same three women, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome. You see what Mark's doing? If this book that he's written is the good news about Jesus then the culmination of this book regarding his death and burial and resurrection, it must be established as historical fact. Mark's gospel is not good vibes. It's not good hopes. It's not good ideas. No, it is good news. News is the faithful reporting of the facts. 
And so Mark deliberately abides by a biblical principle here that all truth is to be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Listen to what Paul explains is the essence. If you want to convey the good news to someone else, what is the essence of it as Paul explains to the church in Corinth? And then notice how Mark has proved this in his gospel. In 1 Corinthians 15 verse 3, Paul says to the Corinthians, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried And thirdly, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That, says Paul, is of first importance, what I shared with you. And it's exactly these facts of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus which Mark establishes with the testimony of these three women. They watched Jesus die. They then saw him being buried And then they witnessed the angel announce his resurrection, and they saw the empty tomb. But Mark's account reveals that these three women were unexpecting witnesses, which actually adds, by the way, to their credibility as witnesses of the resurrection. For we see that despite all that Jesus had taught his disciples multiple times that he would be killed in Jerusalem and he would rise again on the third day, None of these women expected this. Now, how do we know this? Well, we see in verse 1 that they expected to find a dead corpse. They went out after sunset on the Saturday evening, just when the markets reopen uh, for an hour or two at the end of the Sabbath, and they purchased oil and spices to go and anoint the decomposing body of Jesus. This was usually done before burial, But because of the time constraints on the Friday afternoon, that wasn't possible. Did you notice that they didn't take flowers as a gift for the risen Jesus? They didn't take food. They didn't think, you know what, he might be hungry after having not eaten since the last supper uh, on the Thursday night with his disciples three days ago. They didn't think like that. No, they were expecting to find a dead body. Similarly, we see that they were worried about the logistics of the heavy stone. Who would roll away the stone for them to access the tomb? They they were not expecting a supernatural resurrection. They were not going there in hope. Their their body language speaks of defeat. We'll see that in verse 4, but it, it implies that they were downcast. They were weighed down with the reality of of a rather grim task which lay ahead of them to go and anoint the the bloody, bruised, pierced, dead body of Jesus with burial oil and spices. They were expecting to find Jesus as they had witnessed him, dead and buried. And we may want to be quick here to judge or condemn these women for their lack of faith, but just hang on. Their their lack of expectation in the resurrection of Jesus. Their their lack of understanding. And Jesus taught so clearly about what they should have expected on this Sunday morning. But Before we are quick to judge them, let's remember that at least they were at the tomb to do whatever they could to honor Jesus. As with his death and with his burial, 
So now with his resurrection, we see that the disciples are nowhere to be found. But in all three accounts, these women are there. In the second place, I want us to see then three, uh, unexpected, uh, uh, three unexpected discoveries in verses four to six. Three unexpected discoveries. These women, um, although at the tomb we, we now understand for the wrong reason, they are the ones who are now blessed with three amazing discoveries. Discoveries which were intended to, to blow away all misunderstanding and doubt and fear so that they would see and understand and believe that Jesus Christ is their living Savior and Lord. So the first unexpected discovery as they approach the tomb, lifting their heads from the gloom of their sadness and despair, as they were wondering how they're going to get into the tomb, they find that the stone has been rolled away. And notice what Mark says, and it was very large. Those last few words are strategically placed by Mark at this point. Just like you'll recall, Mark strategically placed uh, those words about the temple curtain being torn from top to bottom to show us without a shadow of a doubt that this was a supernatural act of God. We don't have the historical proof, but there is one early church document of this stone being so large that 20 men could not roll it away. Now, we don't know that for sure, but the point is clear. The stone was very large, clearly way too big for three women to, to move. They had no hope of moving it, when suddenly as they look up, they make their first unexpected discovery. That large stone has been rolled away. But that's just beginning. In verse five, they enter the tomb and they make their second unexpected discovery. They see an angel of the Lord, a young man dressed in a white robe sitting inside the, the entrance chamber of the tomb. We know that angels announced the birth of Jesus. Angels ministered to Jesus during his temptation in the wilderness. Angels encouraged Jesus during uh, his agony in the garden of Gethsemane. Angels will be there to declare his ascension into glory. So encountering an angel at the resurrection, that, that should have been somewhat expected. Nevertheless, we are told that these unexpecting women were alarmed. Now the word really means to, become, to, to be overcome with great fear. To be overcome with great fear. The King James Version says they were affrighted. I didn't know that was a word, um, but you get the picture. They were terrified, terrified. And the angel says in verse 6, don't be affrighted. Don't be alarmed. Don't be overcome with fear. Some translations say these women were amazed. And we have a very different connotation to amazement. Wow, that's something so cool, so big. Well, if these women were amazed by what they saw, why would the angel tell them to stop being amazed? No, he knew that they were not expecting him. They were not expecting what he was about to reveal to them. And so he, he speaks a word of, of comfort to them to calm their fear and their terror. And so he reveals to them their third unexpected discovery. Look at verse 6. He said to them, 
Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. Here it is. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. The resurrection of Jesus should have been the most anticipated, most expected news in all the world on that Sunday morning. Because Jesus had told his disciples at least three times. Look at Mark chapter 10, verse 33. Jesus says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. In the light of what Jesus had predicted, Notice the clarity of the facts of this heavenly messenger to explain to the woman exactly what they need to understand. Look again at verse 6. They said, uh, let me just go back to verse 6. There we go. They said to him, you seek Jesus. The angel said to them, you seek Jesus of Nazareth. In other words, he was saying to them, don't worry, you're not in the wrong tomb. This was his address for the last three days. But you seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. Again, Mark is establishing the facts of the death of Jesus, even from this angelic messenger. And then he says, he has risen. What an amazing three words. We could never even begin to explore the depths of the meaning and the implications of that simple statement of fact, he is risen. And then he says, he is not here. In other words, come and see the place where they laid him. Again, Mark is establishing the the chain of evidence with these three women. You saw him die. You saw where they laid him. Now come, see for yourself that he is not here. Three unexpected discoveries, all clearly intended to reveal the facts, the undeniable, verifiable facts of the resurrection of Jesus, just as he had predicted. I love what William Hendrickson says about why the angel removed the stone. He says, not to enable Jesus to make his way out, but to enable these women to make their way in. The greatest act of God's power ever revealed was the raising of Jesus from the dead. Never to die again as others who had been raised from the dead by Jesus. They all died again. No, Jesus rises forever as the victor over death. He rises forever having conquered death for all those who would believe in him. He rises forever as the first fruits of those who will be raised to life with new glorified bodies when Jesus returns. This greatest of all events was not left to speculation, but was revealed and explained to these three women who had witnessed Jesus' death, who had witnessed his burial, and now we are told Jesus of Nazareth, the one who was crucified, the one that you saw laid in the tomb, he's not here, he's risen. So we've seen three uh, unexpecting witnesses and three unexpected discoveries. Now in the third place, uh, we see two unexpected responses in verse 8. 
I hate this time of the year. We're heading into that crazy season of Black Friday weekend uh, when we see on the media how people are going to pitch their tents or line up outside shopping centers with their camping chairs and their blankets all night so that they can be first in line the next morning when the shop doors open in order to rush in and buy a bunch of trinkets at discounted prices. We see the same thing when tickets are, are launched for a major sports event or a major music concert or a blockbuster movie, how the devoted fans will literally sleep outside the box office to make sure that they do not miss their access into what they deem to be the greatest show of their lives. Well, if that's what we do for 50% discount on a microwave, or to get tickets to a two-hour science fiction movie, then the events of Resurrection Sunday morning reveal the extent of the spiritual darkness and blindness of our unbelieving hearts. There were no disciples camped outside the tomb, eager to get front row seats of the resurrection. Even these women who came early came to anoint a dead body. Mark's gospel does not end with joy and celebration. It does not conclude with hearts burning to go and tell the disciples the good news. There's no worship and wonder of the risen Jesus. Instead, look at verse 8. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. What an anticlimax. Two unexpected responses. They fled from the tomb, overcome with, with trembling. The Greek word is tromos, from which we get trauma of the soul. And, and astonishment, it means confusion, bewilderment. They fled from the tomb in trauma in their hearts. And secondly, they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Surely this cannot be the end. Why, why does Mark end his gospel here in this way with another account of, of human failure, another disappointment in the followers of Jesus? You, you can maybe understand now why someone wanted to add on a happy ending. I think one of the reasons why Mark ends his gospel this way it's to prompt his readers, to prompt you and me to grapple with what are we going to do with the good news of the resurrection of Jesus. These women have just heard and seen the greatest news ever told, at least the greatest news since the birth of Jesus was announced in a very similar way. Remember that on the occasion when the angel of the Lord appeared to the, to the shepherds? They too were filled with fear. They too heard good news of great joy. Today in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord has been born. And as soon as the angel left them, what did the shepherds say? Luke 2, 15, let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they went and with haste, they fled towards the news. They found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. When they saw it, 
They declared, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. But on this day, the Resurrection Sunday, an equally great announcement has been made to these women by another angelic messenger. Do not fear. He is not here. Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, he is risen. But instead of hurrying to share this most incredible good news of great joy, they flee in trembling and they say nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Jesus' disciples were absent. They were hiding in secret in Jerusalem for fear of the Jews. These women likewise left the empty tomb and said nothing, for they were afraid. Again, what an anticlimax, what a disappointment. It's so easy, isn't it, to, to gather as we've done on a Sunday and to, to sing songs about the resurrection as we've sung this evening. Uh, the words as I was preparing of that song, uh, Oh, Happy Day, came to mind. The greatest day in history, death is beaten, you have rescued me, sing it out, Jesus is alive. The empty cross, the empty grave, life eternal, you have won the day, shout it out, Jesus is alive. Let me ask you this, how often do we not sing songs like we've sung tonight in church and then the very next day at school or university or in the office, we are just like the disciples, undercover, hiding our faith in secret for fear of our peers? How often are we not like these women fleeing the call to announce the risen Jesus, and we say nothing to anyone because we are afraid. Mark was writing to a mostly Gentile audience, just like us, probably just before AD 70, when a great persecution was gonna break out across the whole Roman Empire against Christians, and his ending is a most appropriate one to challenge his original audience and to challenge us tonight. What are we going to do with this greatest of all news? The gospel of Jesus Christ who died for our sins, who was buried and rose again for our justification. We need to close, and so just to recap, we've seen three unexpecting witnesses who made three unexpected discoveries who then sadly made two unexpected responses. But I want to end on a, a wonderful note of encouragement for us to consider this evening one unexpected restoration. And we find that in verse 7. Maybe as you read this account this evening, maybe your heart is heavy because you realize how much you are just like the disciples when it comes to Jesus. You are confused, you're afraid, you're undercover, you doubt, you hide your faith in secret. Maybe you identify with these women this evening that when faced with the opportunity to tell others the good news of Jesus and his love, you flee. You flee, you, you say nothing to anyone because you're afraid. As you pause tonight at the end of 20 weeks in Mark's gospel, 
Maybe you realize this evening that as far as faithfulness to Jesus is concerned, you are somewhere on the spectrum between Judas, who betrayed Jesus, and Peter, who denied him three times. Well, if there's anyone who understands the regret and the shame, keeping silent when asked about Jesus, fleeing in fear, even denying Jesus outright, it's Peter. Let's not forget who is the apostle behind the gospel of Mark. It's Peter. So let's not end Mark's gospel without seeing this most incredible grace of God shining through to us who, like Peter, know what it is to be ashamed of Jesus and to flee in fear. There is good news for us too. The gospel of Jesus' salvation extends to us too. His forgiveness and grace restores us too. Look at verse 7. After the angel has announced the good news to the three women, listen carefully what he says next in chapter 16, verse 7. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Did you see that? Go and tell his disciples and Peter. Peter. What grace there is in our God to restore us to himself. Even us who, like Peter, have shamefully denied him who have kept silent about him and who've fled away from identifying with him. What an unexpected restoration. That's the grace of our Savior Jesus to us. You see, grace by its very definition is unexpected. It's undeserved. So may we never cease to be amazed by God's grace to us. In Jesus. Just to help drive home this incredible grace of God to us, we're going to end this evening uh, and end the series with a short video uh, from the skit guys based on this verse. And at the end of the video, I'll just close in prayer. So let's watch this. Grace is God's unmerited favor for us, His crazy love. And the truth is, many times we struggle understanding it. If you find yourself struggling to understand God's grace, don't beat yourself up. Even the disciples struggle with understanding grace. Jesus, is that you? You're alive. I can't believe you're alive. Okay, I was in the boat and I wasn't catching any fish, okay? But I heard this voice and the voice said, cast your net to the other side. And so I'm thinking, I'm a fisherman. I know what I'm doing, but I'm not catching any fish, you know? And so I throw that net over there and then a gaggle of fish pop into that net and I'm going, this is a total miracle. Who could have done that? I need to know who told me to throw the net to the other side. And boom, I look up and I mean, there is you. You're looking at me on the seashore going, it is I, the Lord, and you're alive. I can't believe you're alive. This is awesome. Andrew, get out of the boat. Come on. Peter, yeah. do you love me? Yes, I love you. I love you. You're alive. This is so great. Good, and then feed my sheep. Andrew, get out of the boat. Come on, man. It's him. Peter, Yeah. do you love me? 
I love you, yes. And I'm so sorry about that rooster cluck, and I had no idea what that meant, but I do not. I'm better for it, all right? Okay. Then feed my sheep. Andrew, I'm smiling, but I'm serious. Come on, get out of the boat. It's him. Peter. Yeah. Do you love me? Jesus, mere words cannot describe the passion that I have for you. I love you. You know everything. I love you. Good. Good. Then feed my sheep. I didn't even know you had livestock. That is so like you, though. There's something new about you all the time. That's what I love about you. Peter, yeah. do you remember uh, the morning the ladies went to the tomb? Yeah, 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 yeah. We're all in the upper room trying to figure out what to do next, you know, because we thought you were dead. You know, you were dead, you know, and we're trying to figure all that out, you know. And Mary comes running up, and Mary's like saying, beehive, beehive, beehive. And I'm thinking, I'm allergic to bees. Like, keep them out. You know what I'm saying? But as she kept getting closer, I heard her correctly. She was saying, he's alive, he's alive, he's alive. And we're going, who's alive, who's alive? And she said, she was at the tomb, and the tomb was empty. And she said that the, there was an angel there, and the angel said, go tell the disciples and Peter that everything is okay, he is risen. And so, me and John, we hightailed it down there, and if John says he beat me, he's totally lying, all right? I beat him, FYI, all right, you know? And we get down there, and I'm looking in that tomb, and it is, it is empty. There's nothing in there, you know what I'm saying? And I'm like, what does this mean? What does this mean? And John is right there. John is so good with words. He should write a book. He is so good with words. And John said, don't you get it, Peter? This is everything Jesus said he was going to do, and you did it, and it's done. Let's go. This is so great. Wait, yeah. the angel said what? Uh, go tell the disciples and Peter that everything is okay. He is risen. You've risen. Let's go. This he is said what? Go tell the disciples and Peter. Go tell the disciples and Peter. You said my name. Why did you say my name? Peter, that's grace. No, no, I don't, I don't deserve that because that night people kept coming up to me asking me if I belonged to you, if I was with you, and I kept denying you left and right, all right? No, it'll take me my whole life to make up for what I did. It was unforgivable for no, what I did. No, What I did on the cross was meant to take what is unforgivable and make it forgivable. That's my grace. It's not about you. It's always about me. That's grace, Peter. Let's just pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you this evening at the end of the series in Mark's Gospel the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we can only but marvel at your grace. Marvel at your love towards us in the Lord Jesus Christ who through his death on the cross took what was unforgivable and made it forgivable. Who forgave us and accomplished our salvation. Lord, I pray that the truth of what you have done for us will sink into our hearts. That we will have this burning desire to go out from here and to make you known. To declare this good news of Jesus Christ, of his death and burial and resurrection. 
His ascension into heaven and he's pouring out of the Holy Spirit and he's making us alive and reconciling us to yourself that we will be your faithful ambassadors. Lord, you know the hearts of everyone sitting here this evening. There are those who throughout the service have rejected that which is being spoken, who've rejected your word. There's been those whose thoughts have been elsewhere who have been distracted, who will leave here this evening hardened against this good news of Jesus Christ. And with that comes a great condemnation that awaits them should they stay in this state. But Lord, there are others here this evening who, whose hearts have been challenged as we think back over this past week and month to the many opportunities where we have failed you as these women failed you. We failed you as the disciples have failed you. We perhaps have even failed you as Peter failed you. And we want to thank you for your grace to us, your unmerited salvation that is freely offered to restore us to yourself as you did with Peter. May we leave with hearts so enlarged and in love for you Peter just said in this video, with a passion for you to go and make you known. And for those, Lord, who leave here rejecting you, we pray that you would do what only you can do, which is to break into their hearts of darkness and to reveal yourself to them, we pray, so that they would not perish in this state before you. We plead that you would accomplish your purposes now in Jesus' name. Amen.